Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Tina Ramirez, welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Paul. I'm, I, I'm connected to you through Jennifer Stevens. I, I start every podcast by saying how I'm connected to the person. And so I'm, I'm super happy that she called me very excitedly a couple of weeks ago saying that you were interested in uh, being on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. This is going to be fun. All right. So where do you th- consider yourself from? I, I grew up in Powhatan, which is uh, just south of where we're at, central Virginia, rural community. My mom is from Bonaire, which is Chesterfield, but um, my parents met in the Air Force and they ended up going to medical school and then ended up starting a medical practice down in Powhatan. So that's where I was raised. Were they the only folks with a medical practice in Powhatan back then? You know, I don't know, but I know that it was a pretty small community at the time. My dad was a rural doctor and my mom was a nurse midwife. So she went around delivering babies all over the area. So so, so birth through high school? No. So I grew up until I was about eight. We lived in Powhatan and then uh, my dad moved us back to be with his family out in California. And so I went to junior high and high school and college out there. And uh, actually, my mom moved us back to the East Coast, so I went back and forth. But um, then I ended up after college teaching for a few years and then being able to raise enough money to make my way back here, back home. So So do you consider yourself a Virginian? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up, so when I moved back here in 2003, so it's been quite a while. Yeah, and you spent formative years in Virginia as well. Yeah, well, my mom is one of eight. And they are very much embedded in the Virginia community. I mean, I have 30 cousins around the area. And uh, I mean, it's a huge family. So that's a much bigger family than I have. Yeah. And that's just I mean, that's just on one coast. But I am really thankful for my Hispanic heritage from my dad's side, you know, back in on the West Coast as well. And being being able to have you know spent time with them as well. So when you were 10, 11, 12, how did you Mm -hmm. spend your uh, spare time? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I was I was a church kid. Okay, <laughs> so I went to church. Yeah, uh, hung you... out. I hung out with the youth group, and I was a good kid. We would go build houses uh, for 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 families that needed homes down in Mexico for fun. Uh, we went. Um, we would go deliver sandwiches to homeless on Skid Row in L.A. Uh, so, and then during the summers, I would actually spend my summers back here in Virginia with my grandparents and my family, my cousins. Um, and so I would often go and pick up my grandpa. He was the top veterinarian for the state of Virginia. Wow. How do you become the top veterinarian? I don't know. He used to inspect all of the large animals around the state. Oh, okay. So he, uh, so I used to, I would always remember driving up the, the parkway near the main street, uh, train station and seeing the big, seeing the big tower, the clock on the tower and, uh, bringing Barnum circus cookies my grandma always had a stack of those for me in the car during the summer when we went to pick up my grandpa. And no, ba- no Bailey on the name. Yeah, Barnum, Barnum and Bailey, whatever those cookies were. Yeah, you know? Barnum and Bailey. Barnum yeah, and yeah. Bailey, yeah, yeah, the yeah. little the little cookies. So I just remember getting a box of cookies and doing that. And then actually during the summers, my grandma and I would make meatloaf and brownies, freeze them, and take them to one of the homeless shelters downtown. Okay. So every week, I, I don't, know if, I think it was like Thursdays were our day to deliver meatloaf and brownies meatloaf and brownies were needed by the folks that needed the food or at the homeless just- shelter no we so we would so we would deliver them and everybody brought meatloaf and brownies those on that one day oh okay. and then we would put them put them out and and uh serve them to people in the homeless shelter down in richmond so that was what i did growing up was serving people that's great yeah and, and that continued for the rest of your life for the rest of my life yeah i i 
my family taught me well. <laughs> what, what draws you to that besides your family influence? Um, I mean, definitely my family has been a huge influence in my life, but my faith as well. And so uh, just even as a young um, as a young person, my parents divorced. My dad uh, ended up becoming um, a Jehovah's Witness. And so him and I would get into these really intense debates about religion and theology. And it, they were often very divisive, as you can imagine, as a kid. My dad was just very close to me and so or I was very close to him and vice versa we were very close to each other and so through that time period he actually taught me in a really interesting way I don't think he anticipated it and I didn't really understand it he taught me how to um, really understand what it was I believed and to be comfortable uh, disagreeing with somebody that believed very differently because we still disagree on on matters of faith but but I love him. He loves me, and we can have really intense, um, you know, conf- conversations and things that we don't agree on, and yet still love each other. And I feel like that really was what inspired me, uh, probably more than anything else in my life. And obviously, wanting to serve others, but inspired me into the work that I ended up doing for the last twenty years, which was to help people that were persecuted around the world for their faith uh, experience religious freedom and experience how to get along in a very divided world and society. And not be attacked for who they are and what they believe. And so I've been able to work with people of many different faiths and backgrounds all over the world, uh, whether I agree with them or not in their theology, but because I see their dignity as human beings and be able to stand up and, and defend their fundamental human rights. And so that's what I spent the majority of my last 20 years doing in my career. How did you get into that? So, so I was very inspired, um, obviously by these intense conversations with my dad but then in college i had a professor that introduced me to this field of international human rights and uh, she was a strong woman and so i think she was an inspiration to me in many ways and i began to learn about uh, this field of international human rights around the world and i ended up going to strasbourg france and i studied at the international institute for human rights there and i learned how uh, i met people from all over the world that had suffered um, and been persecuted and oppressed for many different reasons including because of their faith uh, people from Rwanda and other countries. And I learned how they um, were able to use this idea of, hey, I have a right to life. I have a right to my dignity. I have a right to be free. I have a right to participate in my government. I have a right to my my religious beliefs. I have a right to all these things. And I learned how you could use that, these universal concepts uh, to help defend people that were being persecuted and oppressed around the world. And so that then led me, I became a school teacher. As I mentioned, I had to pay off my student loans. And yes, I believe that we should pay them off ourselves. So yeah, of course. So I, so I, I went to college and I had to pay off my student loans. I became a teacher, which I was passionate about, and then I was able to, um, to, go out into the big world and, and really do the things that I was most passionate about, and, and um, live out the things that I had studied for so long and was teaching to children. Um, and so I ended up going and studying. I did a second master's degree. My first one's in inter- in education. So I did my second master's degree in international human rights over in England and uh, studied at really one of the most prominent human rights universities in the world and learned how I could use this field of international human rights to help people. And then I moved back to the East Coast at that point and so came back to Virginia and uh, was able to do a lot of really neat things with that. Let's explore uh, one of the countries you went to. Uh, sure. Which one would you like to start with? I know you've been to Rwanda, uh, South Sudan, so I, so I've been to, yes, over 30 countries in the world. And uh, just, so when I went to DC, I ended up working 
uh, for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And then from there, I was recruited to come work for a U.S. congressman and to build for the U.S. Congress a bipartisan caucus to defend international religious freedom. And that was under Frank Wolf and a number of other members of Congress. So he's from Northern Virginia, as you know. And that caucus led me to work in over 30 countries. So I went to uh, Sudan. Um, I went to Nigeria. I went to Nepal. I went to Iraq, India, many countries. But I I guess I'll share maybe Sudan. I have a funny story about that if you'd like. Sure, please. Um, So I went to Sudan with... uh, the head of a large humanitarian organization, I won't say which one on on here, but uh, he said, he, I worked with him really closely and he's a very good friend. He said, Tina, I wanna see if, if, if Sudan, if the Khartoum government accepts your visa from South Sudan, and if they don't, this is during the peace agreement between the North and the South, and it was an issue I'd worked on very uh, closely on the Hill. He said, so I'm going to send you into, I'm going to get you on a plane. And we went all over South Sudan, but he's like, I'm going to send you into the northern part, into the Nuba Mountains. And if you get, if you get held by the police, that's okay. Because, you know, since you're a congressional staffer, they'll just, they'll get you out. But I want to see if these visas actually work. <laughs> and so <laughs> he literally sent me on a little plane. You were a test case. I was a test case. And I was happy to be his guinea pig because um, I wanted, you know, to actually, I actually did want to push for greater freedom in Sudan and South Sudan, which, you know, later seceded. But uh, so yes, I was his guinea pig. We went up to the Nubian Mountains, and I was able to investigate what was happening. And as you know, um, President Bashir at the time, who was still the dictator of Sudan, was bombing homes and churches, uh, centers of of worship and of of community gathering places all over the Nubian Mountains still at the time. And so, I was perfectly safe, but uh, it definitely tested the peace agreement that was happening in there at the time. And uh, I was able to come back and lead to greater action in the U.S. Congress on the peace agreement, which then ultimately led to uh, holding an actual referendum for the South, which then did choose to secede from from Sudan, from Khartoum. And they made the right choice, in my opinion. Yeah. We're we're working on it. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't feel great to say seceding from anything is a great move, but that particular government, uh, they made the right move. Well, thankfully, Omar al-Bashir is gone now. I mean, that's Mm. really, and it's amazing to me. So, so my, the company that I started eight years ago, Hardwired, we actually went into uh, Khartoum and began training leaders after the South seceded who were engaged in the constitutional process. And they were able to write a constitution that protected religious freedom for all people and protected women's rights. And then uh, the constitution was never adopted under Bashir. But now that Bashir has literally been ousted from the country, uh, they are now in a position where they've been able to actually call for those rights Finally, and so over the last eight years that I've been working in Sudan and in South Sudan, but in Khartoum in particular, those leaders that I trained eight years ago are now able to actually see the fruit of that work, of that labor, and see their rights actually embedded into a constitution where they can actually have the freedom that they fought so hard for. Is unification for so possible, you think? So it, it, that's in Khartoum. I, I don't see unification happening in South Sudan and Sudan, but um, I do know that the South Sudan, Sudanese are very involved in trying to build a stronger Sudanese government. And so Salvakir has hosted some of the peace talks in South Sudan for them. Um, you know, we'll see. I think both of them are on very different paths, very difficult paths for each of them. How do the uh, the citizens of South Sudan or Sudan uh, react when you're, when you're talking about the concepts that you're talking about? Because for a lot of them, I, I imagine they're foreign. They've been under oppressive regimes for most of their lives, if not their entire lives. Yeah, I think that the one thing that they're so grateful for is that when I come in and provide trainings for these leaders across Sudan and in South Sudan, that I'm not trying to dictate 
what they do or what laws they apply. It's their country. They should determine that themselves. But I'm really just walking alongside them and helping them understand for themselves that same process that we went through in our constitutional convention. How do you how do you understand what rights and freedoms you want for yourself? How do you have this intrinsic understanding of what those rights and freedoms are and how do you gain them for yourself? And so really throughout their history, no one's allowed them to go through that process themselves. And I think that that process is really critical for any country to actually have a sustainable government. That's why in America, you know, we see our, through our constitutional convention, this was three months of brilliant leaders coming together that had very um, different opinions about a lot of controversial issues. And yet, because they were able to go through that process for three months of literally going through duels of hashing it out in very um, difficult circumstances, but having the ability to air out their differences, to fight it out um, through public discourse, through civil public discourse, they were able to come up with a constitution here that has been sustainable now for, you know, hundreds of years. And yet in the rest of the world, we think that we can bring in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or UN treaties, slap it on a country, and all of a sudden they're going to, you know, wake up the next morning and be free and understand why they got, how they got there and how to implement it. And so I think that denying other countries the ability to really work through that process as we've done here in order to actually embed those freedoms, understand those freedoms, own those freedoms themselves, and then be able to sustain that freedom is really essential. And I think today, if you look at what's happening in our own political process, the reason that there's this breakdown in our own political process is because we've forgotten what made us so strong as a nation is the ability to actually allow for that public discourse to hash out really difficult concepts. You don't shove through legislation with, you know, I've got 51% of the vote, I'm shoving this through and like it or don't, you, this is what you get. That's not the way our country was founded and that's not the way our country should work. Yeah, and what you're trying to uh, train people to, uh, to understand and to live, uh, there are hard concepts for them to pick up. And so it does take time, it does take a lot of hard effort. Mm-hmm. And to your point, public discourse is very important. Who are the folks in these countries that are actually participating in, in that discourse? Are they uh, just concerned citizens? Are they lawyers, politicians? Mm-hmm. So the, the organization that I started, we identify key leaders in the society that can have an influence on the laws or on the educational policy in the country. And so uh, we began working in uh, Sudan, then we began working in Iraq, and we've expanded into Nigeria, Nepal, and many other countries. And so we work with local partners that are able to identify those key strategic leaders that can impact and influence the legal the, both the court of law and the court of public opinion, as we, as we like to say. And then separately from that, we also work a lot on the education system. So the other place or country where I've done a ton of work is in Iraq. And I know you've been to Iraq too, in very different circumstances. So I- Dangerous for both of us. Yes. (laughs) Well, probably more so for you, but, but I do know that the people that I work with do put their life on the line. And so I, uh, am very aware of that and very, um, just, just just honored to be able to work with them because I know the risks that they take and the work that they do. And I know, for instance, the gentleman in Sudan that I worked with, you know, when they were going back into Khartoum for, to fight for that constitution, they were putting their lives on the line and they knew that they would be persecuted and oppressed for it. And um, so, so I, I take what I do very seriously because I know that the, I know the, the risks that these people take. But in Iraq, uh, after ISIS came in in 2014, I was actually pregnant with my daughter at the time. I was five months pregnant. And because I had worked on Iraq so much on the in Congress, these uh, different religious communities, the Yazidis, the Shabak, the Kakai, Zoroastrians, 
Christians, Chaldeans, um, you know, across the board, the, the different Muslim groups, they all came to me and said, Tina, please help us. We're dying. We're, 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 I mean, it's genocide. We're just being attacked and we don't know what to do. So I was literally five months pregnant and I said, okay. So I got on an airplane. I went there and I remember meeting a woman named Aida who is 42. I, I'm 42 now. So at the time she had a four-year-old daughter. And so I was pregnant and I just resonated so much with her and just my heart wept for her when she shared her story, which was that uh, when she was trying to flee her town, ISIS, as you know, gave them 48 hours, all the Christians to get out of, of their homes and to leave. And uh, she was literally had a gun put to her head and was told, you can leave your daughter or you can be killed right here on the spot. And so she was forced at gunpoint to leave her daughter behind, her daughter Christina. And I remember hearing her story in this um, in this uh, this public room that had been once been a wedding reception hall in in Kurdistan and it was just lined with mats along the corridor with all of the families that had fled and here she and her husband were just crying with me sharing what had happened to their little girl and I just thought my god that's what happens when people it's unimaginable don't have the ability to protect themselves um don't have a government that can protect them uh it it's the most heartbreaking thing that you'll ever witness and see. And so I knew I had to do something. And so we started by bringing together the, all the different religious communities and lawyers and leaders within the government and educators from across the area and just working with each of them in their different spheres of influence to understand why everyone deserved religious freedom. This wasn't just a right for the Yazidis, or the Christians, or the Muslims. It was a right for everyone. And I think the most poignant really example of the impact of the work that we did in training them to understand what freedom is really about for everyone, regardless of who they are and what they believe, was that one of the individuals in our training was a judge who was in charge of the court to oversee uh, justice for the victims of terrorism. And he, we did multiple trainings with them to help them understand how to fight for these different freedoms in the legal system, in the public uh, eye, in the social media, and in the education system, et cetera. And this judge had come back to me during one of the trainings and I asked him how he was doing. And he showed me this um, image on his phone and it was an image. Uh, he had fled from Mosul. He was in Baghdad with the court, but he had many siblings and his 17 year old youngest brother uh, in the image was being beheaded by ISIS. Oh, mm. And uh, I said to him, so after he had left us, he had shared a story after the first training that he had gone to the Yazidi and the, and the Christian communities. And he's a Muslim, a Sunni Muslim judge. He had gone to these communities and he had said, I am going to fight for you and fight for justice for you. And so I knew that that's what he was doing. And I was asking him, how's it going? And he showed me that image. And I said, what does this mean? What are you going to be able to do? And he said, well, this is a warning, Tina. And I said, does that mean you have to stop? And he said, if I stop, if I don't stand up for freedom, for justice, for these communities, this is the reality that awaits every person in Iraq. And it was the courage of men like that that had gone through our program that said, this is worth risking my life for because if I don't, all of us die together um, or separately. And so he actually opened the door for us to then go back into Mosul and to begin working with the director of education in Mosul. And now the entire I mean, government there has opened the doors to us to retrain every teacher in Mosul so that when the children that were living under ISIS at the time, because it was still occupied by ISIS, were finally liberated, we would be able to go in with teachers that were prepared to help retrain those 
the retrain those teachers and then re-educate those children so that they could value the freedom and dignity of one another and rebuild a society where they were not afraid. And one of the teachers that ended up going through that training was, uh, they were these two Yazidi men and they developed the story called the peaceful garden. That's what we call it. We develop, we help them develop lessons that they go back in and the, the garden is, it was this lesson built around, uh, a group of refugee kids that they had outside of Mosul that they were working with to try to that we were training and they were trying to help these children overcome the extremism that they were seeing all around them and that they were being influenced by. And so they took all their kids to this garden and they told the kids to go make bouquets of flowers, but just to not choose this one color flower. So the kids did, they went, they were really excited. They brought back their bouquets and the teacher said, well, now look back at the garden, see what happened to it. And so the kids look back at the garden, they realized that they had just totally ravaged it. And so the teacher said to the children, they said, this is what happened when ISIS came in. They destroyed everyone except for the people that looked like them. And the kids were really emotional because they realized that that's what had happened. And all of them were united at that time because they had all experienced it the same, regardless of who they were and what ethnic or religious group they came from. And so the teacher said, do you want to leave it this way or do you want to rebuild it? So they said, no, we want to rebuild it. So they gave the kids a packet of seeds and they started replanting the garden and learning about the value and the dignity of one another and their fundamental rights. And at the end, they came back to the garden. It was beautiful and it had been restored. And the teacher said, what did you learn? And the student said, we learned that, um, that this is going to be a hard journey forward for us in our country. But if but we now have hope that it's possible to break the cycle of violence, to not go back to what we've seen. And so that's really the model from not just Iraq, but all around the world that I've been able to plant these seeds of peace and freedom for people that, that don't have it so they can experience the kind of freedom that we have here every day. And those stories aren't just for children in Iraq or in other countries where I've worked, but they're for children here. I mean, there is just like when I was a kid and my dad, you know, and I had very different opinions about faith and other issues in America today, I think that we're at a point, really a boiling point, where people shouldn't be canceled because they have different opinions and beliefs. It's crazy. It's crazy. We need to overcome this and get to a point where we can respect the dignity and freedom of others to believe differently. And where, where um, differences of opinion don't become flashpoints of conflict, they become uh, really points for vibrant discussion and reflection. And that's where we need to get to in our country. And so that's what I've fought for around the rest of the world. And what I see more than ever is needed right here in our own community. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. Uh, it's especially stark, though, in places like Iraq and uh, Sudan. Uh, but, but we have our own issues here that we can certainly be better at. It's certainly, yes, very different. Um, it's just unfortunate when we see the same kind of de- divisive tactics that occur in the rest of the world happening here, uh, you know, in our own schools, in our own communities. It's just around social media. Uh, you know, the social media is a lifeline for people around the rest of the world who don't have a voice, who are trying to just struggle for the kind of freedoms we have. And so seeing it used here as a weapon against people uh, that are just, you know, have differences of opinion is really unfortunate. I think it's, it's really indicative of the lack of civil discourse we have in our society, the lack of respect we have for one another. And we should be better than that. Absolutely. You have uh, ex- what I would call extreme courage, given your your personal history. Where does that come from? Well, I, I don't like pain, so I don't know if you call it extreme I, I, courage I I, or what. But yeah. <laughs> like, pain I mean, pain topics is a slightly different put me on a, yeah. Put me on a ski slope and I'll, I'll go on the bunny slope or I'll just, you know, <laughs> sit down and read a book. But, um, you know, I don't, 
for some reason in my mind going to Iraq and Sudan, Nigeria, and these places because I'm helping people. It, it's just part of who I am and, and what I believe I've been called to do. And I, I just, I really find so much energy and um, just passion and being able to help people, uh, whoever they are, wherever they are in the world. And I, that's just, I mean, certainly how I was raised, but I'm, you know, unique even within my family. And I guess it's just, you know, we're, we're all different. So that's just what's, it's what keeps me going. It makes us great as a country, uh, our diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said Nepal, so I have to explore that. What, what was that experience like? I mean, Nepal is just a fascinating country and it's beautiful. Nepal for many years was trying to rush through a constitution that would really radicalize the country. And so um, they were getting a lot of pressure from India and India has been going that direction for a number of years now. And so it was a very, um, it, it was a quick turnaround really. Because, like, like they were checking a box kind of thing? Well, they they had just been getting a lot of pressure from their um from the region to push through a constitution that uh, would would really suppress the rights of minorities within the country, mm. minority ethnic and, and religious communities. And so so I was asked, invited by some local groups that were working with members of parliament to come and to train them in, in how to develop legal protections for people across the board and not to be afraid of people that might believe differently. How do they know about you? So I, because I, when I worked in Congress and I traveled to so many countries, I was the only full-time staffer that worked on these issues on the Hill. And so I built up a lot of relationships and a lot of trust and respect from people all over the world. And so... So your network was really international. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Yes. And so when there's a conflict in the world, they call and they say, can you help? <laughs> and so I, I do. I have a pretty large network. And so in Nepal, they had asked me, can you come and help? And the work that we do in this legal training of helping people really deconstruct what it is that they want for themselves and not become and be able to break through their own fears of others really or fears of losing control is is pretty unique and so that's what we did uh, in Nepal and helped them develop some legal protections so that they wouldn't end up in a reactionary kind of downward spiral of like wanting to protect themselves but actually suppressing minority rights in the process yeah what is it about the human condition where certain groups, tribes, want to suppress the rights of others. I, it just It's maddening to me. Well, and in Nepal, I think what was so fascinating about it is that's exactly what we explained to them was, you know, you are a majority here, but if you were living in X country, you would be a minority or in X country, you know. And so I, it, it's really hard for all of us to get outside of our bubble. We think that, you know, we are superior wherever we're at and, you know, so much for everyone else's rights. But what we have to remember is that everyone's a minority somewhere. And ultimately, the most important thing that we value and, and understand is human dignity. At the core, every person is a human being and deserves inherent dignity and respect. I mean, that's fundamental for all human rights. And so how you treat people here when they're a minority is really indicative of your level of respect for those basic human rights for all people. And so, uh, you know, we often just say that when that it's kind of the canary in the coal mine, you know, when you look at. The, the smallest minority in your community, if you can treat them with dignity and respect, then it's indicative of the level of respect you have across the board for everybody. And it makes the world a better place. It does. I mean, it just does. It, it, we just have to not be afraid of diversity of opinion and, and belief and people who are different. And that's ultimately what's happening. It, and I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, tolerance is a really misused word. Respecting people who are different and have different beliefs does not mean that you accept what they believe is equally valid. And 
so I can have a very different theological position as my father and yet respect him fully and love him fully and still have vibrant discussions over our differences. I don't have to agree to agree with him to accept and love him. And I think that that's where we need to get, need to get in our society. I think there's this level of conformity where people need to have this group think over ideas. And it's like, well, no, actually it's okay to hold differences. And, and in the rest of the world, it's essential because people are just so different. Those differences make us vibrant. Yeah, you can't. I, I don't want everyone to look and act the same as me. Oh, how boring would that be? <laughs> it would be very boring. Yeah. I mean, I, the best thing in Nepal are really their spices. So I went all the way up into the mountains and I mean, the spices there and you get them fresh are just phenomenal. So um, I, I do follow my nose and I love foods when I travel. That's definitely one of the highlights. But What's your favorite food since you traveled so much? Well, I, I love Mediterranean food probably more than anything. Okay. But Moroccan food is just... They can take a tomato and and cook it down so that it becomes like this sweet, pasty, just amazing thing. And I don't know what they do with it, but definitely, I haven't had a tagine that I didn't like. So say that again, tagine. I haven't had a tagine. Yes. Okay. I've never heard <laughs> yeah. that term. Yeah, it's like you know those cone-shaped uh, oh yeah things yeah, that yeah. they put on the stove out in the middle of like a wood burning. Yeah, they're probably oh, fire. fantastic. They're amazing. Yeah, very cool. All right, so you're running for Congress. Yes, getting back to the yeah. yeah, no, it's all good. Uh, seventh district here in Virginia. Yeah, uh, and you're running against Spanberger essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me, well, let's talk about the process. Let's break it down uh, very. Uh, high, we'll call it a high level uh, for say my kids. Help them understand the process that you're you're going to go through over the next year and a half or so. That's really funny. So when you say the process, literally, I sit my daughter down. She's six years old now, but I sat her down when she was five, and I showed her. You know, I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill <laughs> sitting yeah. here at Capitol Hill. But it's a really easy way of understanding what the political process is. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a good one. Um, so, I mean, essentially, I have to run for the nomination in the Republican Party. And I ran last year. I ran in 2020. I did not get the nomination. I lost by about eight votes. And so... Did you say eight? It was... I, so I w- came in third place by literally eight votes. And so, Yes. So I, it was wow. a very close primary. Uh, I was neck and neck for second place. And so I I understand how to run a very competitive race. I raised nearly half a million dollars in my last race, uh, ran against seven people. It was a very intense process, and I learned a lot in that process. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. I got to meet people all over the district, make a lot of really great new friends, and just be really encouraged by just the grassroots support that I received. Uh, I had never been a candidate for office before. I'm not a politician. I'm a mother. I'm a single mother at, at that. So I, you know, I, I have a little girl to take care of and I run a business. So I, you know, running for Congress was a new experience, but we ran an excellent race. And it, that's why after that, um, you know, after we lost the seat again in November, a lot of people came to me and said, Tina, please run again. You know, a lot of people believe that if I was the candidate that we would win. And I think that, you know, in the last, so I announced on July 1st that I was running. And the same day that I announced, Abigail Spamberger put out a fundraising email uh, mentioning my the Fox News article where I announced. So I don't think it's just people that are friendly to me that understand that I could have won or that I she's could win. Wor- she's worried about you. Abigail Spamberger realizes that I can win. Yeah. And so... And it's, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm a different kind of candidate. Like I said, I'm not a career politician. I believe in citizen legislators. It's what I've trained people to do all over the world. So I understand, I understand what's at stake when you're fighting for these fundamental rights and freedoms. And, 
and having moral courage and building up constituents and working for the people. I mean, that's what I've literally been helping people do all over the world and uh, even within the U.S. Congress. So so I, I'm very excited about this process. But more than anything, I, I'm excited because the momentum that we've seen in the last month has been phenomenal. A week after I announced, I had raised over $100,000. I mean, just to give you a perspective, I raised that in the first two quarters of the first time I ran for Congress. Oh, wow. So the amount of support out there that I've seen is just amazing. A, a few weeks ago, I received a national endorsement from one of the federal PACs that supports women candidates, uh, Maggie's List, conservative women candidates. And uh, they help, they're helping a lot of conservative women that we're seeing coming out across the nation to stand up. We tripled the size we tripled the number of Republican women in Congress last year alone. 11 of the 15 seats that were flipped in Congress were flipped by Republican women. So running in a competitive district like this, uh, we have seen how competitive Republican women can be. And and I intend to, to win the seat next year in November. So, But the amount of support has been really astounding. On social media, our social media has just gone viral. We've We've seen just, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, one particular post that we asked, you know, what is the price of gas that you're paying? It went, it had over 7 million people view it. I, I don't understand. I mean, that. I don't, I have like 3 million people every week looking at my social media, which I'm not, a, I'm not. What's the population of your district? It's not it's, 7 it's, million, right? It's, it's not 7 million. So people nationally are very concerned about the state of our, our country. Uh, and they see that in Virginia, we really are at ground, ground zero in the fight on education. Um, and in our district in particular, that, I mean, that's the biggest issue that I think people are concerned about. They're concerned about the shutting down of businesses and being able to rebuild the economy. And, and they're concerned about what's happening in our schools. I'm concerned. I mean, I, when I got into this race, I did it because I shared the story of Aida a minute ago. And let me just say that I prayed for that woman for four years. And when the U.S. helped liberate Mosul, and thank you for your service as well. And thank you to all of those that have served because... People around the world look to us as this beacon of hope. And when we walked side by side and helped them liberate Mosul from one of the most, um, you know, just horrific uh, in, terrorist groups, yeah. terrorist organizations we've seen in our lifetime, um, Christina was found. Christina. That, oh my gosh. She was found. Oh, that's a, awesome. And she was reunited with her family. And I just can't tell you having literally not stopped praying for her and sharing that story with my daughter for those four years, just it was so encouraging for me. And that was right before I decided to run for Congress the first time. And so it was just stories like that really are an inspiration for me. When I, when I see the way that these progressive liberals in our, in our state and our country and in our district are pushing policies, uh, where they're silencing our freedom of speech, canceling people because they have differences of opinion, where they are shutting down our schools and trying to indoctrinate our children in this critical race theory, when they are, um, shutting down our freedom of conscience, our freedom of worship, and all all these other freedoms. When I see these things happening, I am very concerned. And people across the country are very concerned. And that's why they're looking at this race. And they see Abigail Spanberger, who is not just a, a representative here in the 7th District. She is standing at the national stage as a puppet of Nancy Pelosi, literally putting a rubber stamp on everything she does. She votes with her, uh, you know, on every issue and on all the issues that are really most concerning to people in our district. So Abigail Spamberger has taken more money than anyone else in Congress in the House of Representatives from the teachers unions. Mm. And this is astounding because these are the same teachers unions that have been shutting down our schools and shoving this kind of critical race theory down our throats. She's 
she's on the PRO Act and on a lot of other anti-business legislation that has prevented businesses from being able to rebuild and grow in this in this difficult time. I find it very concerning as a business owner myself because I see the impact of these policies every day. And, you know, she said that she was going to go up there and be this fierce, independent woman. But the only thing that we've seen is that she's voting lockstep with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. And so the reason that I want to run and that people around the country are supporting me right now is because I want to put a check on Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. And the way to do that is through the 7th District and winning the seat back. And so that's what I'm committed to do. And I I believe that, that it's time for people to get up there and that are just going to roll up their sleeves and help actually bring unity, not shove policies through like they're doing that there isn't uh, support for and, and really work for the people, not see it as a way of, um, you know, promoting their own careers or their, their own personal interests. I, I just, I'm very concerned about what's happening. I really feel like it's time that we, that we get back to, um, citizen legislators and really restoring this district to the people that it represents. And I just don't think she represents us. It's uh, very hard to think what the what the end game is for them. I don't understand the path they're on and, and where it leads. No, I mean we see our economy right now with the rising inflation. We see we see it at the gas pumps every day. We see it in the grocery stores. We see. I mean, I shouldn't. As a mother, I should not be afraid of sending my daughter to a public school. And sadly, that's what's happened in Virginia because in Virginia, these progressive liberal policies are doing many things, but. They are literally teaching our children in the public schools uh, how to prejudge others based on the color of their skin. And my daughter, I'm Hispanic, obviously, and uh, my daughter is biracial. Uh, her father was African. And so I don't, I've, I've worked my whole life to fight for human rights and to teach her to treat other people with dignity and respect, regardless of who they are and what they believe, and to not prejudge people on the color of their skin. And so the idea that the school districts where we live, we, where we live, that we moved to out of our own school choice to go to a, a great public school, are teaching children these values that really undermine the values that I'm trying to teach her at home is very concerning for me, and it's uh, even more concerning that parents across Virginia are being doxxed and harassed and attacked, uh, and their livelihoods being attacked because that's literally what doxing is doing in Northern Virginia, Loudoun County. There was an entire Facebook group that was posting the names and addresses and business and workplaces of parents that were opposed to critical race theory. Now, we should all be opposed to critical race theory in the schools. Kids do not need to be taught that uh, that they're somehow racist simply because of the color of their skin. It's pulling our society apart. It's, it's dividing people, and I see this all over the world. And then to dox parents that are doing that, it's just criminal. And as a parent myself, that could have been me. Like... So that they're trying to take away our livelihood for simply standing up and speaking something of difference of opinion and saying, I don't think that that's right. I don't want my child. I am the parent. You are the parent. We are the ones that have the right to what our children can learn and the values that we want to to instill in them. Not these these teachers unions that are pushing this stuff uh, through our schools, our education system. And it's it's why we see across Virginia and across the country, everybody's looking at us and they're like, what is happening in Virginia? And that's why it's so important that we get this district back and that we restore some semblance of common sense and of dignity and of of just, you know, rationality to our state. This is totally out of control and it should not be happening here. Critical race theory uh, was a thing back in the 60s and it. And it- kind of went away and now it's back because it feels like it's politically convenient to 
a spouse it again, <laughs> but it, it's it's anti melting pot. And when I was growing up in this country in the seventies and eighties, it was all about us becoming a stronger melting pot because we get stronger when we when we get together. Well, we're not going to be more unified when you teach children, uh, you know, that based on the color of your skin, you're somehow an oppressor or an racist or not. I mean, if my daughter goes to school and she being biracial thinks that she needs to look at her white Hispanic mother as somehow an oppressive racist and see as superior the father that abandoned her, I'm not sure what world that is ever okay in. I was always taught by my parents and those adults around me that said, hey, never judge a book by its cover. Well, you know, in the 60s, Martin Luther King fought for this idea that you don't prejudge people. Um, you know, he wanted people to be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And so the fact that they are reversing that progress is very concerning. Um, but look, I've seen all over the world what happens when they divide people like this. And it, you know, in in one of the schools in my neighborhood um, that my daughter could go to uh, when she's older, the principal was sending out an email to all the parents inviting them to read several articles on how to be an anti-racist. And these articles were promoted by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I read through the articles and the, the articles were literally promoting Marxist ideas. Now, when you look at what happened and what's happening in China, what's happening in Cuba right now, what happens in Venezuela every day, you cannot tell me that these ideas are something that Americans should be embracing. And the fact that we have school districts and people that we are paying the salaries of that are promoting these ideas, doing this is very concerning. And then just to go back to Abigail Spamberger, who's taken more money than any other congressperson from the teachers unions that are openly embracing these ideas. And she doesn't say anything. And she, you know, she wouldn't say anything about Cuba. Took her 48 hours before she would say anything. And then she made one little post about, oh, I'm watching the situation. Because these leaders do not have any moral courage or moral standing when they've been openly embracing these ideas. They can't, they can't condemn what's happening in Cuba when they've embraced it in our schools through the teachers unions and, and the, this forced indoctrination of children. It, that's the problem. And we, you know, Abigail Spamberg sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee in Congress. Obviously, I have a lot of foreign policy background and experience. And so when I see her on the Foreign Affairs Committee and she sits on it with Ilhan Omar, who has made many anti-Semitic remarks, who has literally called our greatest ally in the Middle East, Israel, a terrorist organization, who has parroted the talking points of Hamas, which is an actual terrorist organization designated by the United States. There's no, there's no real doubt about that. Yeah, Exactly. No doubt. I mean, most Democrats know there's no doubt. And yet Abigail Spamberger sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee allowing this vitriolic rhetoric to occur and she doesn't say anything so my question is and i think the question for a lot of people in the seventh district right now is either abigail spamberger believes what ilhan omar is saying or she's just spineless but either one is is totally unacceptable for a member of congress and if i were on that foreign affairs committee ilhan omar would be asked to be off of that committee because when i was up there working for a member of congress i worked under tom lantos a democratic chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. How in the world have we gone so far in our country that we are allowing members of Congress to spew this kind of hatred, vitriol, and not standing up against it? Where we are, we are, don't have the moral courage to stand up against the communist, 
you know, evil that is happening in Cuba or in any other country for that, for that matter, how is it that we can call our greatest ally a terrorist organization? Where is the leadership? I mean, I have literally fought against authoritarian countries around the world my entire career for the last 20 years. I have stood up literally in a, in a living room when President Musharraf of Pakistan was visiting the United States and called him out on the, on the abuse of women, the, the violation of human rights that was happening in that country. I've done the same things to other dictators in other countries. Where is the moral courage? Where is the leadership? And that's why I'm running, because I'm just sick and tired of it. I think people across the district are sick and tired of it. People in the nation are sick and tired of it, because we cannot, as Americans, be a beacon of hope and freedom to anyone in the world if we can't even be that to our own children. And what's happening to our children in our future, to me, is terrifying. And so I, you know, I, I fought over the, all over the world, but I have, I mean, I, I will, you know, I will not stop fighting here for it. We cannot lose the freedoms that, that our founding fathers have given us that fought, I mean, that so many people fought so bravely for. We cannot trample on the, on the sacrifice that they paid for us. We cannot. I, I wholeheartedly agree. The anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric uh, and then no response from the, her own party members. I, does that happen all the time or is that unique in our time in history, our moment in history? It didn't. It didn't happen when I was on the Hill. When I was on the Hill, I remember Joe Lieberman and others that would stand up against this kind of thing. I don't know what's happening amongst the progressive liberals that are running amok across our country right now. But, I mean, they've openly embraced socialism. They've openly embraced Marxism. And Americans need to recognize that that is not a healthy path forward for our country. It's not. It seems like there are a lot of foreign uh, interests that are involved in our politics. I, I, I don't know anything about those, but it feels that way. It doesn't. It feels very uh, un-American. Well, the foreign interest in our politics right now is that Abigail Spamberger gets the vast majority of her funding for her political campaigns from outside of Virginia. So, you know, let's get back to where Virginians are the ones deciding who are who, who we're going to send to Congress and that they are accountable to Virginians, not to donors everywhere else in the country, California, New York, except for here. So here's a fun question, and I've never asked a politician this question. And of course, I don't ask politicians many questions because that's not what I do for a living. But uh, term limits in Congress, how, how does our system get us to a place where we actually do have term limits? Because I, as a uh, middle American, I, I, I think there should be limits. And we get to a place without limits where there's abuse of power and, and it's clear and obvious. Well, I absolutely agree with you. I've signed term limit pledges uh, in the past, and so I'm totally supportive of them. Uh, I will say that to get there is a much harder job, obviously, as, you, as you've indicated. And one of the paths forward for that, in my opinion, was legislation that Senator Braun had introduced last year that never, they passed the Senate, but no one ever took it up in the House. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi. And thank you, Abigail Spanberger. Uh, that would have forced, um, or would have taken away the retirement plans of members of Congress. And I think that that is a first step that we can at least get them to vote on because members of Congress have no business living off of us when they leave. It is a privilege. No, no, business. no business. It is a privilege and an honor to go up there. I am not a politician. I will be a citizen legislator. I will go up there to serve the people just like I've served people my entire career. And when I leave, I will go back and get a day job just like I'm doing right now. I worked full time throughout my campaign the last time I'm working full time now. This is important. We need citizen legislatures, people that are farmers and businessmen and, 
and store owners and teachers and others going to Congress so that it doesn't become a career to be a politician for life, a bureaucrat. It's not what was intended. Originally. It was not originally intended. You know, you go back to the farm and that's where we need to get back to. And if we can take away the retirement plans, look, they all of these members of Congress, when they leave, get invited to multi-million dollar jobs afterwards. Why do they need to then still live off of us? And I'm just, I hate being treated like their personal piggy bank. It's one of the things that motivates me every day to, to run and to fight is because as a single mother, I work very hard. I put my life at risk, obviously, in these other countries. And I don't do it so I can be someone's personal piggy bank. I do it because I want to restore the power of the purse back to the people, some responsibility in our government and our government um, fis- fiscal responsibility to governance. And that's just critical. I mean, our country cannot be strong in the world if it if it doesn't have its own house in order. And right now we don't. Uh, the wasteful spending is out of control. I mean, we've seen it this past year with, with the different progressive liberal agenda. It, it's it's just insane what's happening. We've got to put, we've got to rein it in. But that means first and foremost, every single one of those members of Congress should be willing to tell you that they will not take retirement from Congress. The member of Congress that I worked for when I was up there didn't even take, um, he never took an increase in his salary when he was up there. He gave it back uh, to, That's to, what they should to the government every year. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, these are the kinds of things that we need. They're really simple, but they show integrity in our leaders if they go up there and say, I'm willing to do this because I'm not going up there to live off of you for a lifetime. I'm going up there to simply serve you and to go back to work. Yeah, in very simple terms, a congressperson who served six years in Congress, they have speaking engagements for the rest of their lives and they'll make plenty of money. Uh, A a one-term senator, same thing. Yeah, there's no, there's, you know, our this idea of long of career politicians and you know lifelong bureaucrats it's it's what's destroying our country right now and we've got to change it yeah it, the challenge will be how to do that and then having the courage to actually uh, follow that plan well i mean if if you know your past is any indication i did work on the hill for 4 years i was involved in foreign policy and so many people that i know in that field would then go and work for lobbying firms and make you know six figures or more doing that I left and worked for a law firm, worked for the Beckett Fund when they were defending Hobby Lobby at the Supreme Court, and then I started a nonprofit. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not um, you know, trying to make money off of my experience in any way. I want to serve and help people, and that's my fundamental core value as a human being. And um, you know, in in running for Congress, it's it's really because I believe that people need someone up there that's going to serve them and represent them, and that's just not happening right now. How do people learn more about your campaign? Thank you. So you can go to tinaramirez.com and you can learn about the campaign. They can they can volunteer, they can donate, they can sign up uh, for our emails, they can follow us on social media. It's Tina Ramirez VA is the hashtag, is the, the whatever the handle. Sorry. Uh, yeah, you and I are I of an age. Yeah. We don't quite understand all of that. Yeah. <laughs> but we're learning. I'm learning, yeah. Yeah. So cool. Let's talk about your family. So uh, tell us more about your daughter. So I have a little girl and her name happens to be Abigail. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) She was born, you know, over like six and a half years ago. So that was never intentional. (laughs) I was going to say you didn't name her after Abigail. No, I I didn't know who she was at the time. But we do like to joke and say there will still be an Abigail up in Congress to all those Democrats that are sad about losing theirs. Um, It just won't be that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And my little girl will be a very fierce fighter up there too. She's a tough girl. Uh, she's, you know, I mean, when I see these policies that they're trying to push in Virginia saying that Hispanics and African-Americans can't compete 
in the math and science uh, you know, realm. And so they're trying to lower the standards. It's silly. I, it's I silly. just find it insulting because I'm like, well, yes, you know, I am a Hispanic female and personally, I would not be very good at math and science. I, you know, my mom and dad were both medical professionals and I didn't go in that field. I, I'm a humanitarian, but my daughter is really smart in STEM. And I'm like, don't dictate what she can or can't do simply because of the color of her skin. You, you know what is, the worst thing you can do for a child is to ha- give them low expectations. Exactly. It's the worst thing possible. Oh no. My daughter knows how to ro- work really hard at a very young age. I mean, she, she's just, She's such a workhorse. She's an awesome little girl. I'm just so proud of her. I, I mean, she, I, she's my heart. She, I just love her to death. So I'm, I'm so grateful for her. I, so I, you know, I, I mean, obviously many women never expect to be put in a difficult situation where they're going to raise a child on their own. And when I was six weeks pregnant, my husband left. And so I have been raising her by myself ever since. And I never, um, I just, she is the greatest blessing to me in my entire life. I just, I, I really struggle with, uh, in this, um, arena where abortion on demand is pushed so much as, as, you know, Hey, if you're in a difficult position, you need to, I was asked that many times when I was pregnant and I said, you know, why is it that, that when you, you know, why is it that you're asking me that? Because when you're asking me that it it implies that somehow my child is less valuable of life. And regardless of the position I'm in, I'm telling you that my daughter is extremely valuable to me and she's worth it she's gonna be a powerhouse she and she is going yeah she's gonna be a little rock star i know it she, she wants to be an astronaut i don't know then the next day she'll say she wants to be an engineer or something else or a ballerina so who knows but she, she kind of sticks with the astronaut she's not saying it. unicorn princess no no, no she's, <laughs> she is definitely a scientist at heart an engineer at heart so you know she's um she she's she's the modern young little wo- woman and i'm so proud of her but you know i just i I do not understand how in this day and age where we have so many opportunities, we're trying to dictate what people can do with their futures and their careers based on the color of their skin or anything or, or their difficulty of their positions in life. And I hope that my life and my story is an inspiration for people uh, who come from many different backgrounds, because I really believe that that we need more people to that are in difficult positions to have the opportunity to experience the blessing that I've experienced and of life and of, you know, a child and it, you know, the, it's just, it's the greatest joy that we can ever have. And when I looked at that woman, Aida, whose daughter was stripped from her arms at gunpoint, I just thought, you know, this is why we fight for freedom around the world because no mother should ever have to go through that. I shouldn't have to see my daughter in schools taught to hate me. I shouldn't, I mean, our children are just so valuable. And so, you know, the mama bear in me is coming out and you know it's fighting for her and for our future. Maybe your daughter's generation with the help of people like you can have a place where they can actually get us to uh, a society where we don't see skin color and we just, we, we treat people based on uh, the fact that they're human. That would be a great place to go. Uh, do you, are you an only child or do you have siblings? No. So I have, I'm one of four. Okay. I'm the third. So, okay. Yeah. So uh, all girls. No. So my, I have an older brother. He's actually, uh, he's an air force. He's an air force reserve right now, but he was a pilot for the air force. He flew air force too. Oh, wow. So I, yeah, I'm very proud of him. He's awesome. I have a younger brother who is, uh, just, just a phenomenal entrepreneur, built his own company and is doing amazing things. And then my sister is a lawyer and, um, serves people and works in education and she's, just a brilliant educator and work, works with people. So I'm just very blessed. My mom uh, lives nearby. And so when I had my daughter, she was a huge help. And I learned firsthand when she had become a single parent, how 
like much she had sacrificed for us. It really became very clear. So my mom is a hero. She's sacrificed so much for all of us. And, uh, you know, I mean, she was dragged out to California and, and, you know, had to literally when my dad left, she had to, um, go back to, she had left her career and everything for, for my father and to move. And so she had to rebuild a career. So she ended up going back to school and getting a PhD in education and then being able to work her way back here as well. I mean, it's, I really understand families that, um, you know, it's, I, I, you know, it's so easy to, to take for granted how hard it is to be a single parent or to, um, to be moved and uprooted and from where you're from and then have to rebuild and people that struggle with just, you know, having, having a middle income job and all of the extra expenses that are coming up with inflation right now, having a fixed income. I really understand what's happening in our country and how hard it is for families because I've seen it. I've seen it, you know, growing up with my mother and, and how hard she works. And my heart goes out to them right now with the way that the government is preventing people from being able to provide for themselves and their families, that the government thinks that they know better how to spend our money. I just, to me, it is so wrong because I've seen how much my mom sacrificed for us to have the opportunities we've had in our life. And so um, I just, I'm very committed to helping families be able to, to dictate their own futures without the government interfering in them. That's, I think, what most people want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I close most podcasts with a fun question. Are you a Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy Fallon kind of guy? What kind, kind of gal? <laughs> I don't know. Probably neither. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, it's, it's all good. But let's say you have your own late, okay. late night show, but uh-huh. it's only going to run for one night. I got a six-year-old. I go to sleep at like nine <laughs> <Yeah>. o'clock. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. But you, you're going to have three guests on, and you get okay. to decide who the guests are. One male, one female, and one musical guest. Oh, my god. And goodness. they can be alive or dead. Male, female, and a musical guest. That's right. Okay. So this is um, not meant to be a hard question. Yeah, this is a hard question. <laughs> a male, a female, and a musical guest. I don't know. Um, who are the most fascinating people in my dead or alive? Right, dead or alive. It can be for for your uh, entertainment. It can be for the world's entertainment, or or thought provoking for the world. Yeah, I, I I just think you know being. I mean, I think you know Jesus Christ. Obviously, like. If you could ask him, like you're not the first one. To any, say, like, why, Jesus. why wouldn't you ask him? Like, I, I've had dreams of, like, yes, I just want to ask you all the questions. Like, how did you make the world? Like, where did it? Like, just fascinating. I just think it would be fascinating. My daughter and I stay up late at night, um, you know, before she goes to bed, just asking really fascinating questions. And I mean, they're beyond me. I have no idea. So obviously, that one. Uh, I think that. Um, oh, uh, there, there are people that I'm really inspired by around the world that have done phenomenal things. There's a woman in India named Amy Carmichael that helped um, a lot of, like she was predated Mother Teresa there. So that that caliber person. And I just think somehow like asking her how she did what she did would be phenomenal. And then a musician uh, would be, um, I don't know, probably like someone like, Fats Waller. <laughs> okay. All Someone right. like that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. We're right at an hour. Uh, you are a powerhouse yourself. You are uh, vibrant and energetic, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.